Uh, it's good to see you guys. My name is Robert, one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. Uh, and this morning we are continuing in our study of the New Testament letter uh, titled First John. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open it up to the book of First John. First John chapter 5. And if you've been reading along with us as we've been going through this, or you've already turned there, or you're turning there now and your eyes fall on the page, you'll realize that we've now come to the last chapter of this great letter. Uh, What probably took John, I don't know how long it took him to actually write, takes up maybe three pages in your Bible, has taken us a good three and a half months or so to actually walk through. And so this week we actually enter the last chapter of 1 John, uh, chapter 5. We're going to read and talk about the first five verses. So though it's the last chapter, it's not actually the last week that will be in 1 John. Uh, But just to remind those of you who are guests with us or those of you who have been with us for a while, but to kind of bring those of you who are guests up to speed with us, Uh, John wrote this letter that we have called 1 John to a church in the region of Ephesus uh, with an eye towards reinforcing their faith in what they had heard and believed to be true about God and his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, The church was undergoing some struggle, undergoing some persecution, and ultimately dealing with some confusion and misinformation that was being brought to them by people who had once been a part of the church, who had then left the church, and now come back to the church saying that what the church had believed was only the partial truth. And they needed the rest of the truth to actually understand what the gospel is all about. And so John wrote this letter to actually settle the hearts and settle the minds of the Christians in that church. And while doing that, he had another aim and he was fully aware of what he was doing. And that was to unsettle the hearts of those who were confused. To unsettle the hearts of those who were in the congregation who had brought this false truth back to the church. John wanted to settle those who were true followers of Christ and he wanted to unsettle those who weren't. And the way that John went about doing this was, was by repeatedly, and if you've been with us for a while, you know what we mean, repeatedly pointing the people of God back to evidences that they should be able to see in their life, characterizations of life that would be true of them if they were really followers of Christ. So instead of arguing like Paul regarding the propositions that we are to believe in that are true about Jesus, John takes us to the fruit. If you have truly believed in Christ, then this is what should be growing out of your life. And when you see these things growing out of your life, you can actually have confidence and assurance that you really have been born again, that you really have been rescued from your sin and been forgiven by God. And John hangs all of his teaching on on three big things. Genuine belief, genuine faith, and the truthfulness of the gospel message. Genuine love for God and for brothers and sisters in Christ and genuine obedience, and not just stark obedience, but delight-driven obedience. Faith in Christ, love for God and the brothers, and delight-driven obedience, John has said over and over and over again, are to be evident in the life of a follower of Christ. And when you see those things in your life, to greater and lesser degrees, you can have confidence that you really have been saved. God really has performed a work in you and is working in you. This is what John's message has been. And in our text this morning, he's going to go back to those same three things. Faith in Christ, love for God, love for the brothers, and delight-driven obedience. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read our text this morning, then I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to take our time together to kind of unpack what he's saying. And we may take a little different route into it this morning that I'll explain in a minute. So if you've got your Bibles, 1 John chapter 5, 
I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, then I'll pray. The Word of God says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for uh, this privilege that we have. Let us never take it lightly to gather together as your people to freely read your word, uh, to freely open up our, our calendars, our schedules, and our time to come together uh, to hear your word taught. And we would pray, Lord, that in this time, by the work of your spirit, this word would begin to conform our hearts and transform our character uh, into the image of your son, Jesus. We already read, Lord, that your word is perfect, uh, reviving our soul. Lord, let your word this morning, revive our souls, refresh our souls. It, your word is sure. It, it makes wise the simple. Lord, we are asking by your spirit for wisdom from your word this morning. Uh, your word is right. It, it rejoices our heart. Lord, let your word be a source of joy to our hearts this morning. Uh, that your word is pure. It, it enlightens our eyes. Lord, help the purity of your word this morning to open up our eyes to your beauty and glory, uh, particularly in the person of your son, Jesus. Lord, may your word be desired by us this morning. Uh, Greater than gold, much fine gold. May it be sweeter to our souls than honey. And moreover, Lord, may we, your people, be warned. May we be corrected. May we be directed for your glory and ultimately for our joy. We ask this, Lord, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. This morning, I want, I want to take some time on the front end of, of, of this talk, uh, really the bulk of this talk, uh, to set these verses up. And what I want us to see is how genuine faith in Christ, real genuine love for God and for the brothers and sisters in Christ, and then genuine delight-driven obedience relate to a particular identity that is true of those who are Christians. If you've been around Redemption Hill for a while, um, you're, you're no stranger to us talking about our identities in Christ. Uh, identity is really just a way that we understand who we are, and that understanding helps us learn and how, how to respond to ourselves, how to respond to the world around us and the people around us, and ultimately how to respond to God. Uh, identities just give definition for how we understand ourselves, the world around us, and, and relate to God. And all of us are a complex layer of identities. Circumstances, past, and family, and all these things play into how we understand who we are and define ourselves. And those definitions, those identities give shape to how we then relate to ourselves and other people and the circumstances in this world and and even to God himself. The scriptures are are very clear that for those who are followers of Christ, for those who who have been and are being transformed by the grace of God, uh, we have new ways of understanding who we are, the world around us, and God himself. The gospel actually gives us a, a new set of eyes and a new set of identities. And a couple of years ago, I actually preached a series about this. And, and in coming through the scripture, I pulled out four pictures or, or metaphors or identities that the Bible gives us as followers of Christ to help us give shape to how we understand us, the world, and, and our relationship with God. We talked about what it means to actually be a family. 
mean, how does the gospel transform our understanding of ourselves in relation to other brothers and sisters in Christ? The world and God. What does it mean to be part of the family of God? And we went on from a family to ambassadors. How does that shape how we understand ourselves and our, and our life and our relationship with God? Disciples and then servants. Um, we preached that series and, and from there, those things did what I, I probably didn't anticipate but kind of took on a, a life of their own in this church so much so that if you're, if you're in one of our Redemption Hill communities, you know that you kind of orchestrate your understanding of how as a community you live together through those identities family, ambassador, disciple, servant. What does it mean for you as a community to live those things out in the life that God has given you in the place where he has put you? Uh, short, Chris calls them fads. Um, but they're not actually fads. They won't, they won't go away. Um, they're, they're eternal. But honestly, there was nothing particular about those four when I preached the series. I felt like they encompassed the big ideas that you can find in other places in the scripture and they were easy to put hooks on for us to understand ourselves because ultimately those are just four of the, of the metaphors or descriptions or identities that are in the scriptures that are to be true of followers of Christ. So let me just read for you this morning just a shorter or a longer list of those identities you can find in scripture, but shorter than if I were to be totally comprehensive. So somewhere right in the middle. And this is what the Bible says is true of you if you are a follower of Christ. Uh, you are, very simple, we'll start with the big E on the eye chart, a Christian. I mean, did you know that in the early days of, of Christianity, uh, that title, that identity was actually a derogatory term? Christian actually came from the pagans in the area. They called the followers of Christ Christians or little Christs. And that's come to be the most generic way that we understand who we are and self-identify our faith and self-identify ourselves with others. But that's actually a term that we'll find in the scriptures. We are Christians. But the Bible will also say this. We're children of God, children of light, children of the day, um, children of obedience, believers, the faithful, friends of Jesus, brothers and sisters. We're called sheep, we're called holy ones, we're called soldiers, we're called witnesses, and we're called stewards. I love that one. I should have put that one in the series. Understanding yourself as a steward has massive implications for how you understand yourself, your life in this world, how you relate to this world and others, and ultimately how you relate to God. And another one I should have put in, it's in the Bible all the time in the New Testament. We're called saints. That has massive implications for how we understand ourselves and our world and relate to God. And we left that one out of the series. Maybe we'll do an addendum. We'll go back and add two more. But that's what the Bible says is true about us. We're also called fellow citizens, lights in the world, and the elect of God. We're called ambassadors of Christ, ministers, servants, disciples, heirs. We're called branches in the vine, members of the body, living stones by which the temple of God is being built, epistles and living letters. We're called beloved. We're called followers. And there are a whole host of other metaphors the Bible uses to help us understand who we are because of what God has done for us through his son, Jesus. All of those pictures, all of those identities, all those metaphors ultimately are somewhat interdependent upon one another. And a Christian is really a composite of all of those things layered on, on top of each other. And this is what we talk about when we talk about our identity as a Christian, our identity before Christ. And just like these identities kind of become a way of helping us understand things and then kind of take on a life of their own that they have at Redemption Hill, family, ambassador, disciple, servant. And you also see these things becoming so much a part of our understanding of ourselves that you'll often find people greeting one another with these identities. Have you ever been greeted by someone? Good afternoon, brother. Hey, brother. We're gonna talk to the sisters I'm going to talk to the brothers. I'm going to walk up here. Good morning, beloved. It's an idea. It's true. 
And these things become so much a part of our understanding that, that we even use them in, in relating to one another. And when we do that, it's reminding us of what's true because of Christ about who we are and how we relate to one another. It's a very helpful thing. But there's one particular metaphor and identity and, and whichever word we, we choose to use, and I'll probably use them both throughout the morning, uh, that doesn't often find its way on the list in, in conservative uh, evangelical circles, kind of like the ones that we swim in. Uh, there's one identity that's, that's riddled throughout Scripture, and we'll, we see it referred to in our text this morning, uh, that we don't often put on the list. And, and in my own honesty, uh, I've had to deal with this week that I actually don't put on the list. That in all of our teaching here and, and in other times in the, and when God's given me opportunity to teach, there is a particular metaphor and identity that I, I tend to just go around. I kind of do an in-run on it when we come to it in the scriptures. And the whole point of one, re- well, one reason why we preach the Bible verse by verse is so that when we come to things that personally we typically wouldn't just stand up and preach, we've got to deal with it because it's in the Bible. And there's one metaphor and identity that I'm guilty of trying to do an in-run around uh, pretty often. And you see it referred, we've talked about it already in this series, but you see it referred to pretty specifically here in chapter 5, verse 5. I'll read it to you real quick as the lights go out. Um, I'm going to read it to you from a, a, a different version of the Bible, the Holman Christian Standard Version, just because I think it helps bring this identity out a little more clearly. Verse 5 says this, Who is the one who, some Bibles say, conquers? Conquers the world, but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Throughout the book of 1 John and throughout the New Testament, believers in Christ are often referred to or referenced to as those who have conquered, those who have overcome, those who are indeed because of Christ victorious. And I'll be honest, in my mind, when I hear that, when when I read that, it takes me to places that I'm not too comfortable with. It takes me to, to, to TV things, things that I've seen on the TV and, and preachers that I've seen on the TV who have used these pictures and used these metaphors and, and used these identities in ways that are not particularly healthy to the body of Christ and not particularly true to the scriptures themselves. Uh, they, 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 they've been absolutely neglected by the conservative end and circles of the evangelical world and in that neglect co-opted by other members of the family. You know, you've got family reunions and you've got that crazy uncle that always shows up and you don't quite know what to do with him because he just says weird things all the time. That brand of Christianity has co-opted this metaphor and we've just said nothing about it. And to my own fault, my own neglect, I've tended to do an end around this particular identity and picture instead of actually informing it from scripture for those of you who truly are followers of Christ to better understand and and live out of. And so this morning is somewhat of an act of repentance and contrition on my part because I have actually tried to avoid it though it's very true and very real and very spoken of here in the Bible. And in fact, I used to be part of a ministry. I was thinking about this last night. I used to be part of a ministry who regularly, where you regularly greeted one another with the word champ. You'd see somebody walking up, what's up champ? Champion, super champ super duper champ and, and, and you know it, it it was kind of funny and the majority of us came from an athletic background so uh, we always liked being stroked um, but there's something inherently true about what was being said even if it stoked things in me or in others that weren't necessarily helpful uh, 
And so this morning, what I wanna do is I wanna start by helping us get a bigger picture from the scriptures of this particular metaphor and this particular identity, what the Bible says about this, what it is indeed that we are conquerors of, where indeed our, our victory comes from. But in particular in 1 John chapter five, what genuine faith in Christ, what real love for God and the brothers, and what true delight-driven obedience has to do as a foundation for you being a conqueror and is evidence of the fact that you indeed, through Christ, are overcomers, are conquerors. That's what I wanna do. So most of our time will be on the front end. And so I wanna start by talking about the word. I mean, what, what, what actually, where does this word come from? Where does this idea come from? I mean, in your Bibles, when you read that word overcomer or read that word overcome or read in 1 John chapter five, four times in the last two and a half verses, a reference to victory or overcoming or conquest, all of those words are different ways of translating the same Greek word. And that Greek word is Nike. Yep, just like the shoe. That's where the name of their company comes from. Nike means victory. It means conquest. That's what the word means. In the Greek culture, that was a huge idea. And they were fascinated with the idea of conquest and victory, so much so they actually had a goddess named Nike, the winged goddess of victory. And in that culture, they actually believed that only gods could truly be victorious. Mere mortals might experience smaller moments of victory, but true, lasting, immortal victory could only be achieved by the gods. And so imagine yourself in the congregation when John's letter came and someone stood up to read it. And he said, you indeed, through faith in Christ, you are conquerors. You have overcome Nike, the world. It would have been astonishing to them because this was an idea that was only associated with the gods. But here the scriptures and through John, the Holy Spirit has inspired him to say that no, because of Christ, you indeed are conquerors. You indeed are overcomers. And it wouldn't have been totally unfamiliar to them because we can go elsewhere. About 50 years before John wrote this letter, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Rome. And the Apostle Paul who wrote the letter to the church in Rome was the same one who planted this church in Ephesus and taught them for a few years. So his teaching would have been familiar to them. And in his letter to the church in Rome, in the middle of his letter in chapters eight and nine, Paul is simply just going off on the glory of God and the grace of God in salvation. Uh, One day I hope to see what his response and emotion was really like when he wrote it because I I have to believe that the middle, well, towards the end of chapter eight, he was in some sense like at a crescendo of just joy in writing about who God is and what God has done for us through Christ. And he comes to this great spot in Romans chapter eight where he's unpacking all that God has done for us in Christ and because of that, how we can never be separated from the love of God forever. And he says this in chapter eight, verse 37. In all these things, Distress, persecution, famine, sword, peril. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's as though Paul got to this crescendo and talking about salvation and Nike wasn't enough. Victory wasn't enough. That word even for Paul just paled in comparison to what God had done for us in his grace through his son Jesus. And Paul is writing this letter and I have to believe it was just this great moment of worship. And he said, no, 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 Nike, no, super Nike. If you go and can look back at that word, more than is our own way of translating what's actually a superlative word. He actually says what we could say super conquerors, hyper conquerors, 
more than conquerors. Conquerors doesn't do enough. Nike doesn't do enough. What God has done through Christ for you and what that means for you, you're super conquerors. So much so, he said, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's what the Bible is saying is true about you if you are a follower of Christ because of God's grace through his son. The Bible also, though, doesn't leave us to come up on our own with what it is we're actually conquerors of. We've got to understand what the Bible actually says that we're actually conquerors of if we're going to really understand this identity and and be able to live in it appropriately. So let me just kind of fly through what the Bible actually says we're conquerors of and what John has already taught us that we're conquerors of in this letter. First thing, if you are a Christian through Christ, you are a super conqueror, that's what Paul said, of Satan. Now just in this letter of John, 1 John, John has already said multiple times that through faith in Christ, you as a Christian have overcome, same word he uses here in chapter 5, the evil one. You find it in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. He says, I'm writing to you young men, I'm writing to you church, because you have overcome the evil one. So through Christ, through faith in Christ, because of Christ and what he has done, if you are a follower of Christ, you have overcome Satan. In one of John's other writings, in the book of Revelation, the same John wrote that, that book that wrote First John. I love kind of how he says this and kind of then what he points the, the hope of a Christian towards in this victory. I'll just read it to you. You don't have to go there, but Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. John's talking about the saints who were present at the throne of Christ when he had this revelation from God. And it said, they, talking about those saints, have conquered him, talking about the evil one that he was talking about here, by the blood of the Lamb, and that refers to Jesus' sacrifice and by the word of their testimony. They indeed, because of Jesus, are conquerors of the evil one. And then in chapter 21 of Revelation, he takes that and he points the eyes of those who are followers of Christ forward to what is to await them because of this conquest through Christ. In chapter 21, he says this, verses five through seven. And he who was seated on the throne, talking about Jesus, said, behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And John says, he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now listen to the heritage that awaits those who through Christ have conquered the evil one. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers, same word. This will be his heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. Through Christ you are super conquerors of Satan and your heritage, your promised hope is God himself. The Bible also says something else about what we've conquered. The Bible says that through Christ you are super conquerors of Satan, you are super conquerors of the evil one, but you are also super conquerors of sin and death. Through Christ, you are a super conqueror of sin and death. Now my favorite passage in the New Testament about this is actually 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Apostle Paul is going on this beautiful, beautiful teaching of the promise of eternal life, the promise of resurrection, the promise of a resurrected body. And he comes to this place in in chapter 15, verse 55, where he, he, he brings this great quote in. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Death is not defeat. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? And then he says something that we never quote when we quote those verses. 
Verse 56 says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. Where do thanks go? Thanks be to God who gives us the Nike, the victory, the conquest, who makes us conquerors, overcomers, victors, through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a follower of Christ, by the grace of God, through faith in Jesus, you are a super conqueror over death because through Christ, you are a super conqueror over sin. You have conquest, eternal conquest over what sin seeks to do to you, over what the power of sin seeks to do to you. What is the sting of death? It's sin. And what is the power of sin? Paul said it's the law. The perfect law of God. The holy, righteous, just law of God crushes us apart from faith in Christ because we never cease to do anything but break it. It it crushes us. And in our sin, apart from that faith in Christ, John has already said, left to ourselves, our, our hearts are lawless. Our desire is to recognize the weight of that law of God and find any way out from under it. To try to become a law unto ourselves. John says, left to ourselves, apart from the faith in Christ and transformation that comes from the grace of God, the law can do nothing but crush us. And in our sin, the law actually judges us. And the wages for our sin and transgression and lawlessness is actually death itself. So here's what Paul's celebrating in Christ. Because of Jesus, because Jesus lived his life on this earth in perfect, delightful obedience to the law of God in our place. And because of Jesus' then willing sacrifice to lay his life down, to pay the price for our transgression and for our sin against God's holy and righteous law, because of Jesus' life, his death, and then God's acceptance of his sacrifice and raising him from the dead, you, by faith, are conquerors of sin and ultimately of death itself. This is what the Bible actually says. Through Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, you are a hyper-conqueror, a super-conqueror, a super-overcomer, a champion of champions over Satan and his entire demonic kingdom and arsenal of lies and sin and its capacity to keep you enslaved and the eternal consequences to which it brings. This is what the Bible says is true about your victory. But then this morning in 1 John chapter 5, and here's where we'll kind of dive in and and go from there. John brings in one more dimension of victory. Through Christ, which is huge. And John's going to help us understand what that actually means and how it plays in. But through Christ, you are a conqueror of Satan, sin, and death. And then John says in chapter 5, you are also a conqueror of the world. You are a conqueror of the world. Now, John doesn't leave us alone to figure out what that means. And this is huge. I mean, this is where so many people go off the rails. It's this one right here. This is one spot where we take this truth, and if we don't tether it to the Word of God and what the Word of God says, you will go off the rails. 
And this is where so many people go off the rails with this. So listen, if you've checked out for 20 minutes, check back in for the next bit and we'll try to help you. Listen to how John already defines what the world is that because of faith in Christ, we now are conquerors of. Very important. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Listen to what John says. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, now he's going to define it for us. What is the world? He's going to define it. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions. Those things are not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. According to John, the the world can be summed up as desires for what we don't have. Inordinate desires and cravings for what it is we don't have, and then when we get them, pride in those things. An An inordinate desire for things that we don't have, and then pride when we actually do end up with those things. When we don't have what we want, the influence of the world sees itself working in us and then out through us and craving what it is we don't have. Desiring what it is that we don't have. There's covetousness that begins to mark us. But when we do have what it is we want, you begin to see pride work itself out in and through us. This is what the world actually is. And here's the thing, we love stuff. I love stuff. I will not lie. I love stuff. We all love different things too. There's different stuff that makes each of us tick. There's different things that that capture our senses, that capture our affections, that we then place an inordinate desire in trying to to have and, and to achieve. We all want stuff. When we don't have it, we long for it. You know what that feels like, right? I need to describe this to you. When we don't have it, we crave it. When we don't have it, we conspire to how to get it. When we don't have it, we justify reasons for decisions that we make to try to acquire what it is we don't have. And then when we get it, just tell me if I'm, tell me if I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, just raise your hands. When we get it, all we can do is talk about it. When, when you finally get it, all you can do is talk about it. And you come up with all kinds of ways to get people over so that you can explain what it is you've got and how you've got it and they can see it. You, you make excuses for, for being able to show it off to people. Lusts of the eyes, desires of the flesh, but ultimately pride in possessions. When that begins to take root, when that becomes the characterization of our heart, even for those who profess, as John has said over and over again, faith in Christ, ultimately how this begins to go off the rails, God, God becomes the means to satisfying our, our lusts. We define what the world is that we're going to have victory over instead of letting the Bible define what the world is that we have victory over. And instead of living in a growing humility and death to the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and the pride of possessions and the desires of the flesh, we now say God's responsibility is for us to have those things and that's what victory looks like. Instead of victory being a death to those desires. And you begin to go off the rails you begin to go off the rails. You begin to redefine for scripture what the actual spoils of victory are and what victory actually looks like. But this is what the Bible actually says. We are conquerors of the world. 
pride of flesh, the pride of possessions, the lust of the eyes, and the lust of the flesh. And so, what role then does faith in Christ, love for God and the brothers, and delightful obedience play in establishing and then confirming that you are indeed, and I'm going to give you a definition here, a humbly confident conqueror. What does genuine faith in Christ, love for God and the brothers, and delight-driven obedience, how do those things establish but yet evidence the fact that you are a humbly confident conqueror? Let me give you a definition I've been working on since last night and I worked on it during the sermon this morning. They were, you guys are my guinea pigs for the definition. So here you go. You ready? A humbly confident conqueror is someone who has been born again by the Spirit of God and the Word of God, producing faith in the Son of God and sacrificial love for God the Father and fellow believers, springing from a delightful obedience to the commands of God. It's a long definition, but we'll unpack it here in just a second. Humbly confident conquerors are those who have been born again by the Spirit of God and the Word of God, producing faith in the Son of God and sacrificial love for God the Father and fellow believers that springs from delightful obedience to the commands of God. And the key to this type of humble, confident conquest, the key to this, John says, is a faith in Christ, a sacrificial love for God that springs from delight-driven obedience, which is a lifestyle that demonstrates victory that ultimately then comes from being born again. The key to the whole thing is the new birth, is being born again. So let me walk you through these verses real fast so that you can see, hopefully, how what we've talked about for two and a half months plays into rightfully understanding this identity that is yours rightfully if you're a follower of Christ, that you are indeed a conqueror. You are indeed an overcomer as the Bible defines it. So, First thing, being born again is the ground for and source of faith in Christ. If we don't get anything else this morning, I want you to get this. In fact, we might just stop on this one because I might just take what time I've got left and just stay here because this is, this is ultimately the source of the whole thing. Being born again is the ground for and the source of faith in Christ. Look at verse one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God. You grammarians and you people who really read, you realize the tenses in this verse are very, very, very important. John's whole argument hangs on the tenses that he uses very specifically in this verse. Everyone who believes, present, active, who is believing that Jesus is the Christ, has been. Something has happened already. For you to be believing in Jesus as the Christ now means something has happened to you already. Those who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the promised one of God who would deliver his people from their bondage to sin, Jesus is the one that God had promised who would rescue and redeem his people, Jesus is the only one through whom fellowship with God can be achieved. There is no other way to know the Father but through Jesus. So those who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they have been born again. It's not the other way around. And here's when you don't let the Bible define what it means to conquer, you go off the rails. Faith is not the means to being born again. Faith is evidence that you have been born again. Faith is the evidence. When you see Jesus for who he is, and and to see Jesus for who he is naturally means that you see yourself for who you really are. 
When you see Jesus as supreme and you see Jesus as satisfying and you see Jesus as a necessary savior, you rightfully see yourself as absolutely in need of Jesus. And to see yourself in need of Jesus and to see Jesus for who he is and as God's promised solution to sin and redemption and to worship him means that something's happened in your heart already. That faith... To, to see Jesus for who he is over and against what you have believed for however long you have believed it. And to see yourself for who you really are to, despite what you've ever told yourself about who you really are is evidence that something has happened in your life. It's evidence that the Spirit of God through the declaration, through the preaching, through the proclamation, through the sharing, through the communication of the gospel, which is the word of God about the Son of God, the gospel, the word of God about Jesus who he is and what he's done, that message has now collided with your soul and the spirit of God is at work with the word of God in your soul and what God is doing at that point is making what the the scriptures say is dead in you. Your heart that in sin is dead to the spiritual realities and the glory of God, dead in sin and trespasses. Nothing good in you. Old Testament, Ezekiel would say, your heart was stoned before the Spirit of God and the Word of God collides at this point with your soul, anything about God that was ever taught to you would shatter off your heart like bullets off a rock, just pinging all around. But in this moment, with the gospel, the Word of God about the Son of God, at work with the Spirit of God in your soul, what was dead is made alive. What was once stone is now flesh. The eyes that were once closed to the glory of God in the face of Christ are now open. And you see Jesus for who he really is. And the promise was that with that new life and with that new heart come new affections, come new desires. Now, just as we read and just as I prayed, the word of God becomes a source of joy, a source of refreshment, a source of security, a source of strength. You see God's word and and God's commands as for you and not against you. You see him as life-giving and not threatening. All of that is evidence that you have indeed been born again. Those things don't earn that new birth. And if you don't get anything this morning, you've got to get that if you're going to understand what it means to actually be a conqueror. Because unlike what I used to hear when I would walk around with all of our friends and, and champing this and champing that, and, and, and you can say that. Where's Dan? Is Dan in here? We can bring champ back. When we understand what we're saying, when we used to talk about being champs, you puff up a little bit, chest would come out, shoulders come back, I'm a champ. Rightly understood, all that word does is show me how bad I am. Champ means that somebody had to come and rescue me. I I am only a conqueror or a champion because God, by his grace, had come through his spirit and made my heart alive to the glory of Christ and made my heart alive to me. I don't like me. I am only a champ because of God's grace. That word, conqueror, overcomer, it just reminds me of my need. That's why I think we can say that we're humble conquerors. Faith, which John says, overcomes the world. Faith, which John said, is the means by which the world is overcome, only comes because God has already conquered our hearts. That faith only comes because God has already been at work in us through the new birth, because we've been born again. So even reading John and saying it's our faith that overcomes the world, well, where'd you get it? You didn't muster it up. 
You didn't go buy it at a store. It didn't come with that prayer hanky you bought off TV. It came because God gave it to you in the new birth to see Jesus for who he is. That faith, to see Jesus for who he is, to see Jesus is as satisfying as he is, is what overcomes the world. Those lusts of your eyes, those lusts of your flesh, those pride that you place in possessions. It's only when that new birth occurs and that faith is deposited and that glory is seen for what it is that we can actually, as John will go on to say, be obedient to God's commands. In particular, his commands to love one another sacrificially. John says, this is the love of God, that we love the brothers. And then he goes on to say, how do we know that we love God? What is the love of God? He says, it's obeying his commands. And then John says, his commands are what? They're not burdensome. They only become burdensome when our faith is not in Christ. When that faith is not seeing Jesus for who he is and is sufficient for who he is and is desirable for who he is and and our faith doesn't see the word of God as refreshing and as safe and as life-giving. It comes when our faith is back on the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride in what we have. Then when I need to love my brother sacrificially, when I need to take what's mine and give it because you need it and don't have it, I can't do that because my pride is in what I've got. I can't let it go. My pride is in what I think I need. And I'm going to hold on to what's mine so I can go and get what I need. Jesus said, ha, you've overcome the world. John says, look, you are super conquerors of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. How? It's through faith that's come from the new birth. Because of your faith in Christ. You no longer are enslaved to those lusts. You are no longer enslaved to that pride. You indeed are conquerors. Listen, please, let the Bible define for you what it means to be a conqueror. Let the Bible define for you what your victory really is over. And let the Bible define for you what the spoils of your victory are. You know what the spoils for victory over the world are? A heart that is not enslaved to the passions of the flesh. A heart that's not enslaved to the lust of the eyes. A heart that's not enslaved to the pride in possessions. And when we don't let the Bible define what those things are, we tend to take those very things and make them the source of our victory. Now I'm a conqueror in Christ, I want an airplane. That the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of possessions becomes then the evidence that we think we've won. Do you see the subtle shift? This is the genesis of all lies and pretensions that exalt themselves against the glory of Christ. Let the Bible define it. The Bible defines that victory as a conquest over the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life every day. Verse five says, who is he who conquers? Who is he who conquers the world? Present, active, indicative. Who is the man or the woman who is conquering? Who is living then, to use your language, if you come from that background, victory over the world, over the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, pride of possessions and desires of the flesh. It's he whose faith, 
faith that comes from having been born again is in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. To him, his commands, they're not a burden. They're not a burden. But as one commentator said, God's commands then are no more burdensome now to a Christian than wings are to a bird. They're the means by which we live in freedom and fulfillment as God actually meant us to live. Who who is the one who conquers the world? It's the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. It's the humble, confident conqueror. The one who recognizes that apart from the grace of God and the work of Christ, they are dead in their trespasses and sins. Whatever victory is theirs is only because of the grace of God that has come through Christ and they didn't deserve it then and they don't deserve it now. But thanks be to God who provided the victory. Humble yet confident because even in this world and the battle that rages day in and day out, that's why John said it's he who conquers, who is conquering because there is a battle. John has already said, don't fool yourself. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you're done with this thing. Some of you walk around saying, I don't wrestle with sin. I don't fight sin. I don't have sin. John said, you're deceived. You've deceived yourself. And worse, you're calling God a liar. Romans chapter seven, Paul says, man, I have this battle every day. I have this heart that desires to do what brings God glory, what delights in God, what's done out of delightful obedience to God, but every single day I do the very opposite thing. I want to honor God. I want to serve God. I I have a delight in God's commands, but there's this part of me that keeps doing the opposite. Wretched man that I am. Who will save me? Who will save me? Thanks be to God. To the humble and the confident who know that that salvation comes through faith in the person and work of Jesus and a day in, day out, what John says, walking in the light. Our recognition of that battle an agreement with God about the seriousness of it, calling our sin for what it is, confessing it to God, and then receiving the forgiveness that is ours because of our faith in Christ. Who is he or she who conquers the world? It's he or she who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, is the only way to the Father is the only means for forgiveness and restoration and is, as John said in chapter one, at the right hand of God, pleading as our advocate, pleading on our behalf that he has paid the ultimate price for our sins and that we are indeed forgiven. Eternal victory, real eternal victory. The Greeks were wrong. It's not the gods who get that. It's the humble confident conqueror whose faith is in the one who achieved that victory on our behalf. Let me, let me close with this quote. I didn't read it to the first service because I talked too long. But you're going to be surprised at who said this because if you come from a background where this language is used and you've kind of got this wild idea of an overcomer, you'll think it probably comes from them. But this is actually a quote from John MacArthur. They encouraged my soul tremendously this week. Just listen to this. Let him close this out. I can't think of anything more wonderful than living my entire life knowing that Satan can never defeat me. The world can never defeat me. Sin can never defeat me. 
The law can never defeat me and death can never defeat me. My sins have been paid for in Christ. The penalty of sin has been paid in full. I've been granted eternal life. I've been given a permanent faith and trust. I've had planted in my heart an affection for the things of God, a new nature which longs for those things that are holy and righteous and, and good and just. Indeed, because of Christ, I am a new creation and nothing will ever change that. I have been born again. I cannot now be unborn. I possess the life of God and the desires of the world are growing strangely dim because the truth is in me and the truth teacher, the Holy Spirit, has taken up residence in my life. In Christ, I am indeed a conqueror. Let me pray for us this morning. God, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that your word is indeed trustworthy and sure. That your word indeed is the source for making the simple. Making the simple, that's us. And making us wise. And Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would do a work in our hearts with your word to make us wise to your beauty and your glory in your son Jesus. I ask this, Lord, for your name and your fame and our joy. Amen.